Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Sales and marketing teams, the Alpha Awards are back, and it's time to nominate your business development heroes. On the 1st of May, Alpha Insight, the UK's leading business development platform for the media industry, will be hosting a night of celebration for the best salespeople in the business. Whether you want to showcase a new business initiative, account management team, purposeful partnership or rising star, there's a chance for your team to be recognised in front of key industry leaders, clients and peers. Get your entries in now at alphawards.com. Good luck. Hello and welcome to On Brand with Alf and me, Rory Sutherland. Each month, I'll be talking to household names as well as challenger brands about success, the challenges they face, and future opportunities in the advertising, marketing, and media industries. And today is a very special day because I'm joined by Charlotte Locke from the John Lewis Partnership. Charlotte joined the company in April last year as its first pan-partnership customer director, and early this year, she stepped into a newly created role which unites brand strategy, transformation and campaigns with the aim to deliver even more value to customers across all touch points. According to the published results of the John Lewis Partnership, last year, 20 million of us shopped with the partnership, spending over £12 billion. So I'm delighted to chat to Charlotte and see what plans are in store, no pun intended, for a high street brand that so many of us love. So Charlotte, welcome to the podcast. It's great to be here, Rory. It's fantastic. I mean, uh, obviously, as a bit of a fanboy, um, yeah. uh, I'm particularly excited. But before we delve into what's ahead for the partnership, tell us a bit about your career history and how you ended up in the job you're in at the moment. I know you were beforehand, I think you are at the co-op group, and prior to that at the BBC. So um, do yeah, share I'll, your story. I will do. I'll, I'll try and do 30 years in, in three minutes. <laughs> Uh, I, I, because I, I've been around for quite a while. So I, I, I started out in retail, actually, in the mid-90s. I was working on the Asda loyalty card trial um, in the brilliant days when Archie Norman and Anne Leighton were in charge. Uh, and I just fell in love with retail then. I loved its pace. I loved its ability to connect with lots of people. Um, but I grew up in Bradford, and I wanted to see the world of it. So um I joined Devon St. Scott and I was really fortunate to work on the Tesco Club Card account um, back in Soho Square and learned tons from Ken and Terry and Clive Nedwina at, at Dunhumbie and Tim Mason, um, who remains an inspiration today. I then spent about a decade at McCann, which was brilliant in direct marketing and advertising, worked on some fantastic accounts, United Parcel Service, Aldi, um, 
the uh, COI. In fact, um, I was intrigued by behavioral economics early in my career, and I joined you and Nick Southgate at um, an event that um, Janet Hull ran. Remember Janet um, at the IPA? And there were loads of influencers from the Sun to the Cabinet Office, and we were all talking about how behavioral economics can tackle some of society's challenges. And um, it, it, it changed my career a little bit, actually, because I, I then spent the next few years working with the NHS and um, applying those principles to some really, really tricky challenges from um, tackling uh, domestic violence through to what they used to call WOCBAR, which was uh, women of childbearing age or otherwise known as teenage pregnancy, which was fantastic, really, really stimulating. Then a pal who I worked with at McCann called me and said the BBC is moving to Salford. Uh, we want somebody to run media and audiences. You'd be great at that. Uh, I met Peter Salmon, this amazing, pioneering uh, guy who wanted to take the BBC to a brownfield site in Salford. And I just loved the bonkers ambition of it. And I ended up being um, marketing director there um, and launched around BBC Sounds, around sports strategy for a while. Um, that then saw me go to the co-op, really, because I didn't want to spend much more time commuting to London. I live up in the north of England. I spent a great couple of years there, met Pippa Wicks. Pippa left to uh, join the John Lewis Partnership. Um, uh, she and I love a transformation. She introduced me to Sharon White, to to Nina Bartia, um, and the rest is history. I'm now I'm, I've been here for uh, a couple of years almost, uh, and I'm cultivating Venus flytraps and leading a customer transformation. <laughs> It's, it, it's really interesting because, of course, just as I suppose Chicago is different to New York in the United States, mm. um, the North has always had, you know, it's always been the center of obviously ASDA, obviously the co-op. Yeah. Both started, co-op started in Rochdale, I think, if I'm right. The whole worldwide movement yeah. started in Rochdale. That's right. ASDA was effectively associated Please. dairies yeah, against right. Yorkshire farmers. Yeah. Um, and you've also had, of course, those great sort of mail order powerhouses that used yeah. to be in and around Liverpool. And um, I always think that um, I, I always say the best thing you can do in a way is grow up in a shop because yeah. growing up in retail is like a free MBA. You get to understand everything. Because yeah. there are behavioral questions, there are brand questions, there are pricing questions. In other words, you get to understand the whole waterfront, really. And, you know, I, I mean, for direct marketing, it was always working on American Express was always the kind of great way to get to understand a bit of everything do you still consider yourself a bit of a direct marketer at heart having spent all that time i do uh, i will always be a direct marketer at heart and, I, yeah. and i'm really proud of it and it's the thing that um i would say you know, I've, I've got a, a broad range of responsibilities um from mass tech through to you know store formats and advertising and all sorts of things but um if you ask any of my team what i'm passionate passionate about it's customer insight, data, and how you can um, make an experience as personal as possible. And I learned that from the best in um, Edison Scott and uh, the early days of Clubcard. Um, and uh, yeah, it, it was a it was actually a, a really, really, really great induction to marketing. Um, and I think those principles of understanding customers, giving them what they want when they want it, um, making that experience joyful. Um, absolutely is uh, as true today as it was then. And actually, of course, 
in a sense, direct marketing, rather like behavioral science, I think they're actually quite closely related. I mean, the obviously the devotion to testing and measurement, yeah. but also it's just a different lens through which to see the world. And it really helps, I think, something which is diff- more difficult in, the, in mass media advertising, which is what um, one very good writer calls, there's a new book called The Customer Copernicus. And oh. it's kind of, it's a, it's a, um, it's a fantastic book. But it makes the point that most organizations tend to think in terms of the organization first. And most data is collected for aggregation, for reporting upwards to the top. And in the act of aggregation, you actually lose all the granularity. And the great thing about direct marketing is, you know, just as a copywriter, whatever you're doing, you had to think about it from the customer's point of view. And you also had to appreciate that your customers were different. That actually, yeah. you know, I, I love the phrase from Mark Ritson, the average is the enemy of the marketer, you know, because an average customer doesn't really exist on more than about three dimensions. You know, once, yeah, once you get into I completely more media, agree. Yeah. Completely agree. I mean, if you look at our customers at John Lewis, we've got, um, as you can imagine, this time of year is huge for us, but we get a lot of customers that will just come in at Christmas for gifting. So if we looked at our average customer base, it wouldn't yes. really tell us anything about our um, core, passionate, loyal customers. So we, we, um, I mean, I, I'm a huge fan of segmentation, attitudinal segmentation, demographic segmentation, behavioral segmentation, yeah. actually looking at different behaviors, different missions, um, and really getting to understand as much as possible what motivates the customer um, and which customers really love you and love what you've got and how you should change and adapt to wet to the the way that those customers are changing and adapting, which is we've got what we've got to be keenly aware of, especially at the moment when circumstances for customers are changing so rapidly. And the other really important thing I think is that it's probably fair to say, without getting critical, that the John Lewis Waitrose connection, uh, you know, the cross selling opportunities haven't really been exploited to the full. And and, yeah. and obviously it's a customer focus, not a brand even a brand focus or a business focus that's needed if you actually want people to what you might call shop the whole store yeah you're, you're absolutely right i mean we we've just um well i say just we i commissioned a piece of um pen partnership customer segmentation to really understand that overlap it's about 20 percent of our customers shop in both brands but they're very similar profile customers and of course our waitrose estate is much bigger but we have but um john lewis um is almost 60% online. So as a Waitrose customer, John Lewis is accessible to you. And we hadn't really hitherto presented um, missions, products, services to our Waitrose customers that they could get from John Lewis and vice versa. We're doing much more of that. Um, I mean, you, you might think it's a slightly frivolous thing, but every every um, piece of partyware, decoration and cookware in the Waitrose ad this year is provided by John Lewis. That ad is shoppable. Um, uh, and, uh, you know, the gorgeous little venus flytrap plushies will be for sale in waitrose as well you can't um, see this but there's one actually behind charlotte's right shoulder there's a yes. glorious plushie of a venus flytrap it's absolutely lovely good good idea i, I like to see a bit of merch i merch. absolutely <laughs> i mean i think it's it's very interesting because it's only 20 percent yeah um, who effectively now obviously there are relatively few john lewis stores i'll give you a free tip by the way um, which I think contributed to the demise of the Tunbridge Wells John Lewis store. Don't call them John Lewis at home. People assume it's furniture. And I spent I spent years driving past that store thinking John Lewis at home, basically sofas. I wasn't in market for a sofa. And it was literally two years later I discovered, or three years later, I discovered they sold 
televisions and computers and everything else. I think I'm not quite sure what it didn't sell that a John Lewis didn't sell. Probably women's fashion and um, yeah, fashion and beauty, fashion and beauty. Yeah. Which you could have called it John Lewis for blokes. I would have been there yeah, on yeah. opening day, right? <laughs> <laughs> um, and um, I, 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 what I love about the whole retail thing, and I, I did the kind of the forensic analysis of the failure of John Lewis Tunbridge Wells, and actually a lot of it was where the entrance. Have you ever read the book Obvious Adams by Robert Updegraff? No, I haven't. It looks like it's about a sort of 80-page book. It was written in sort of 1980. And Mike Walsh, who was then the head of Ogilvy Europe, bought me a copy of the book when I was made creative director or something. And I thought, why is Mike sent, you know, why is Mike sent me this totally hokey American business book? You know, I could I wanted just a subscription to the Harvard Business Review or something. <laughs> and then about three weeks later, Mike actually collects Edwardian books. So I thought he's just offloading some of it to surplus stock. Okay. And then I read the book and realized that it was absolutely brilliant. And I then discovered it was one of David Ogilvy's favorite books. A lot of it's about retail and what, what, what went wrong with John Lewis Tunbridge Wells. It had its separate car park. So you couldn't combine a visit there with a visit to TK Maxx or anything else. And the entrance to the car park was only accessible if you were leaving the retail park. And the sign actually came after the entrance. Okay. Now that's classic sort of obvious Adam's detective work. But what I really love about retail is the fact that you can't, in other words, you can't sit down and say, as you might do with FMCG, okay, the problem obviously lies here. So before, without any need for debate, we're going to discuss what we can do in terms of distribution, brand, whatever it may be. Okay, What's lovely about, I think, retail is the, the, the amount of kind of psychological and behavioral forensic work you can go and perform. Is just fantastic. And of course, you have this fantastic opportunity because you've got effectively every Waitrose store is effectively a pickup and collection point. Correct. For John Lewis. And we you've do have a, we do have yeah. John Lewis selections in Waitrose as well. Mm. So we have a yeah. an initiative called Best Together where um we do have John Lewis uh, general merchandise in some of our Waitrose stores. It does very well. And no, uh, and actually that crossover is really, really effective. You can see that in the in the two stores I go to most often. Um but it is interesting because I suppose, I mean, the one tip I give you, it was, I gave you another, an earlier one about John Lewis at home as a bit of, you know, confusing branding. Um, I would do, for, for John Lewis, the website, I would do a kind of Amazon Prime equivalent. You know, what ASOS, ASOS do it, um, uh, Selfridges do it, which is pay once, free delivery for a year. It's an interesting one. It is, it is something that we, that, the whole delivery and and making sure that the the kind of receive well part of the customer journey um, is optimised because we have to be have to be best for service mm. and that has to be best for discovery it has to be best for inspiration but best to, for resolving as well um, and we forensically look at those steps of the journey um, the fact that that is um, a free service at the moment and it's very very competitive I mean it's it's yes. uh, the the value that you get from John Lewis, the fact that, you know, over £30, click and collect is, uh, and delivery is free, um, and that you can collect from um, wherever you are in the country, you are within 10 minutes of a collection point of John Lewis. I mean, that's like, that's extraordinary. We don't charge for two-man delivery. So two-man delivery being, you know, the larger the, items, the, the, the installation. Machine. Yeah, I'm on yeah. the second floor. I know, I, I will know about two-man delivery. Yes. So, so it's, <laughs> a, it's a... And and that is something that our customers really expect. So, having a having a brand with MPS schools like we've got, 
with customer expectation, with a legacy, with a reputation for service. Um, customer expectations are very high. Uh, I mean, I found the same when I worked at the BBC. Um, there's a long way to fall if you disappoint a customer because expectations are so high. So introducing things like charging um, for subscription services when um, that's one of the ways that we def- differentiate is an interesting one for a marketeer, whether we should or shouldn't. Um, I mean, it's a, a, and again, whether that should be linked to any sort of loyalty proposition. I think, I think that's a really, I mean, I, I understand you are relaunching. We'll, we'll come to that in a yeah. minute. I mean, one thing I was really pleased to hear you mention is resolution, because I think there's a fundamental design problem with most online experiences, which is they're designed for optimality and optimal efficiency. And optimal efficiency is designed around when everything goes right and when the yeah. customer's needs are entirely conventional. And what you find about the internet is it's brilliant, except when it's terrible. And the same thing applies to, you know, uh, you know, online retail, which is that, you know, the general service levels, in particularly in the UK, are, you know, astoundingly high. We've got, you know, pretty good distribution. It's a small, densely populated country, etc. But if, if an item goes missing, suddenly all the work is effectively offloaded yeah. to the customer. And anybody who actually broke that pattern, I think, would really, really enjoy. Um, the other tip I always give, by the way, is offer people a choice of delivery modes because everybody has a distribution company they hate. So if it's a small item, let them pay a pound and get it delivered by Royal Mail because, you know, they they know their postman. He knows what to do if they're not in. You know, that kind of thing, I think, is also, is also missing. Um, but as I said, everything is designed for optimality. And then as soon as the customer moves out of that absolutely predicted path of kind of optimal customer journey, uh, effectively, it's a motorway surrounded by a bog. You know, as soon yeah, as you Yeah, I completely go, agree. You know, yeah. You know, as, as soon as you drive off the tarmac, basically, you're in the weeds, you know. I, I couldn't agree more. We have a squad, which is called Resolve Well. Brilliant. Um, I, that just focuses on that stage of the journey. So um, from order through to delivery, through to returns, through to resolution, um, you know, we, we don't fulfill all of our products because clearly we, we work with some branded suppliers as well, but the vast majority we do. Um, and um, I'm really proud that our CSAT, and we con- we, you know, we look at our CSAT forensically and we, and we also look at MPS at every single stage of the journey. Um, and John Lewis is is absolutely out there, still number one for service. Um, and it's not just service in terms of the friendly partner that you expect to see in um, your local branch. It's service around delivery and resolution. Um, and it, we put an awful lot of effort into it. There's more to do because it's complex. You know, supply chains are complex. Things do go missing. Um, but I think we always put the customer first. And, you know, we, we actually go back to our constitution quite a lot. There's a uh, our constitution, um, which was created by uh, John Speed and Lewis, son of Lewis, when yes. um, good Welsh, yeah, absolutely, yeah, yeah. And Speed Speedon was the um, was the person who um, decided that the partner should own the business. And the constitution is extraordinary. I'll get you a copy of it. It's really, really um, fabulous. Um, it's all about industrial democracy. It was created as a, an alternative to socialism uh, or capitalism, actually, um, when when that was uh, kind of a looming threat for the for, for Great Britain. Um, and it put the put the power back in the hands of partners. But it also had some brilliant retail principles. So one of our principles is we won't sell you something if it's not right for you. 
Now imagine that being a principle at some of the um, yeah. at some of the global um, uh, platforms that um, compete for our custom now, and think about the number of times that you get something delivered that you kind of regret, but you don't bother taking back because it's too much hassle. We we have the principle that we won't sell it to you if it's not right for you, um, which I think is a, a very customer focused thing and shouldn't be underestimated. So we will send you down the road in a kind of a miracle on 34th Street way if we think that's the best thing for you. And that's the that's the thing that engenders loyalty. I think that's I, th- I think that's really interesting because the the great problem about you know an awful lot of what business is doing now is it's optimizing lots of things it can measure, but it's not adequately measuring trust, without which all the other measures are kind of meaningless. Yeah, because I agree. If you, don't, if you don't trust the person, it doesn't matter what their prices are. It does it doesn't matter what their notional customer service levels are if you don't have that basic trust. And I remember actually it was a relative of mine who was kind of downsold a camera. Because I think, you know, they were quite, you know, quite rich. They were kind of automatically drawn towards cameras that, to be absolutely honest, were vastly too complex, both for their mental and photographic abilities. <laughs> and they were actually downsold to a much simpler, much better camera that cost less. I, I remember being, you know, there's something, um, there's a wonderful uh, insight from Robert Cialdini, which is, uh, um, he might have been one of the speakers at the IPA. We, we managed to get Daniel Kahneman in the very early days and to speak at the IPA, yeah, which was, uh, and we had Richard Saylor because that was the great Amazing, thing yeah. early to the game. Yeah. And, um, uh, but I think he, he also says strangely uh, that one of the most persuasive techniques is admitting a weakness. And he says that, you know, if you actually say, you notice that very good salesmen will say something just before the point of sale, look, it is quite expensive, but you'll find it's worth it. And those kind of bits of what you might call candor seem to be actually because they engender trust. I'm very interested in this thing, by the way, which is uh, where a logical negative is actually a positive. So yeah, years before Tesco and Sainsbury's started doing it, I pitched for the Sainsbury's launch of, I think, the Sainsbury's loyalty program in the late 90s. And I said, why don't you make your discounts exclusive to loyalty card members? <laughs> now, There's you an may idea. have an issue with that, John Lewis, but my, my argument was that although it seems illogical to make a discount available to a discretionary group, it massively increases the perceived value of the discount because they suddenly go, wow, this card saved me £15 today. Yeah. And it also encourages people to add the discounts together as well in a way they might not do if they're just shopping without that particular constraint. I think so it's all- really smart. I think it's really smart. It, it is something that we're considering. So, I mean, on the on the point of um, um, n- not selling to sell, I think we do that intuitively well. So, I was at an event um, a month or so ago, and um, one of the speakers, her zip had broken just before she was about to speak, and she ran to John Lewis to get a new dress, and they didn't sell her a dress; they mended her zip. So that's that, fantastic. That. And, and we've got so many stories like that. But but how do you how do you in a, a an age of kind of disaggregated online, um, you know, just undifferentiated um, retailers? How do you get those stories into a promise, into a consistent um, understanding with customers? Well, we've got a hundred years of having done it, which is great. Yeah. But yeah. then what we do need to do is codify that and. Um, that's where our loyalty program across John Lewis and Waitrose will look at 
um, not just value and reward, which I think it has to do, especially in the current environment, um, but also some of those special perks and things that are very uniquely the partnership. And that's what we're working on at the moment. And, and member pricing may well be part of that. The, the thing with the thing with member pricing for a, a grocery retailer that you attend every week, that you you know that that stacks up and makes sense. And obviously, um, Tesco have, have made a great success out of it, and lots of others have followed. Um, for a for a general merchandise retailer where average frequency is three and a half times a year, yes. uh, you have to think slightly differently about what what the value of that exclusivity is but i think exclusivity and loyalty is absolutely critical whether that's sale preview um, exclusive product or in fact member pricing but there has to be something that makes it worth being in the club i mean it's worth noting of course that the co-op i mean some people object to member pricing because they say it means that some customers get a better deal than others but equally the co-op has been practicing you know member pricing effectively since the mid-19th century and it's effectively not quite a socialistic organisation. I guess it's anarcho-syndicalist or something. I don't know how you describe <laughs> it. Okay, but I mean that member pricing was a you know was a co-op feature years and years ago. In fact, I yeah. bizarrely one of my most bizarre experiences was going into a co-op. Uh, co-ops in the United States tend to be extremely upmarket. They're kind of Whole Foods and they're run by hippies who kind of you know uh, it, 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 it's an extra, it, yeah. it's slightly surprising. But I went into, you won't believe this, it was actually in Los Alamos, New Mexico, i.e. the home of the atom bomb. And there was a co-op there run by a bunch of hippies. And they said, are you a member of the co-op? And he said, well, only in the UK. And they go, that counts. I got 10% off. <laughs> so this Rochdale uh, movement has kind of I stretched, stretched I its to yeah. Los Alamos, New Mexico. Do you know the cooperative movements around the world have got, um, they share a lot. Um, yes. So when I was at the co-op, I loved that because it, it is a, it is quite a pioneering movement still, and um, people who are in the co-op loves the fact that it's a member-owned organisation. Yes. It has a constitution, it has a council, all of those sorts of things. So we used to have conversations with co-ops like Barcelona Football Club, which, believe it or not, is a co-op. It is, um, yeah, yeah, and yeah. and the Norwegian co-op and the Danish co-op, and, um, and there's a there's a, a lot of um, community support across co-ops, and of course, cooperatives also buy together. Um, and a pioneer things like fair trade. Louis Bassat, who is the president of Ogilvy Spain, he had the best business card ever. It just said Louis Bassat Presidente. Um, Love me. He actually stood for election for the president, I think, of Barcelona Football Club, where you are elected by the members of the club. Yeah. And it does actually, I mean, it does lead to some slightly weird decisions in that the club is much keener on buying really expensive strikers, perhaps. You know, yes. it, it does lead to slightly weird kind of you know, democratic runaway occasionally, I think. And, I like and, and, it. I like yeah. it. And especially I like that um, leaders voted by the people that they that work for them. Um, that, I mean, there's lots of examples of that in corporate rebels. Um, and I think it, it engenders the right sort of leadership behavior. So, um, you know, not just being popular and but but no. actu- but actually giving empowerment and um, recognition and autonomy and all of the things that good leaders should do, um, and it also eradicates bad leadership behaviour. So interestingly, um, I mean, I think the experiment because obviously you've been at the BBC, you've been at the NHS, you've worked on COI. Yeah, you've seen different forms of governance, and then obviously the John Lewis partnership is again not yeah. it's not it's not standalone, but it's surprisingly rare. Yeah, and. 
I mean, there are there are downsides to it. I imagine in terms of decision making, in that sometimes you do need just a top down decision, and if you have too much kind of, uh, yeah, you know, if you have too much kind of, uh, uh, I, I suppose, sort of devolvement of power, some decisions become difficult. But I mean, there's a very, there's a very interesting thing people are experimenting with now, which is called deliberative democracy, and it's kind of a halfway house between. I think the terrible work that's done in politics in terms of focus groups, where you effectively just get people's knee-jerk opinion on anything, and you know, because most people don't think about politics very much unless they're kind of politics nerds, and they just have this kind of gut reaction to things, which isn't really considered. And deliberative democracy is effective, which was used for things like I think same-sex marriage and the abortion debate in Ireland, is where you get a representative group of people selected by lot, a bit like a super jury. And they're, they're chosen to be representative. But then you don't just say, what's your off-the-cuff opinion on something? You get them to debate it among themselves for a period, which could, it could even stretch into days. And what's interesting is it's both more creative because they occasionally come up with solutions you didn't think of. But also, it's surprisingly common that you can reach an accommodation where in yeah, yeah. cases where, you know, an accommodation between, let's say, you had motorists and cyclists, okay, They'd disagree on a lot of things, but they'd all agree that potholes were a problem. You know, and so you actually find... So there's common ground. Of, common ground. Yeah. You find points of similarity rather than emphasising points of difference. Uh, I my like friend, that. There's an Australian economist, Nicholas Gruen, who's a really, really good writer on this. And actually, it's something John Lewis could probably use because you can't obviously make every decision open to everybody. But having a representative sample... So we, most, do, have a, we do have an elected member council. Um, so our... Our um, business plan, uh, our strategy is debated at the council. Um, our chairman is elected by um, uh, a board of trustees, but then is accountable to the council, and there is a holding to account of the chairman by the council. And that and that council is elected so that uh, and it's a, it's a vast array of different partners, and importantly, people from shops. Um, uh, and, you know, so you have the shop opinion, the supply chain opinion, the head office opinion. Um, and I have to say, I think it works really well. I am a fan of industrial democracy. I think it works. We, we're not accountable to shareholders. I firmly believe that um, organizations that just seek profits make the wrong decisions. So I do think I. You, should, yeah. you should seek to make your customers happy. And if your customers are happy, um, and you've got a, obviously a sensible control on costs, then profits will come. Yeah, there's a great book by John Kay called Obliquity. Again, a very yes, short book. Yes, I've read book. that actually. Yeah, I've yeah. seen that. And yeah. he makes the point that the companies that most narrowly pursue short-term shareholder enrichment don't even create that. You know, uh, so uh, the idea of profit as a byproduct of some other I- intent. I think is a much more enduring one. I think the real problem, I think, with shareholder-owned organisations is it, it's not just the focus on financial reporting. It's the you know, I mean, Unilever intelligently, I think, refuses to do quarterly reports. Yeah, because they say if you want, you know, that first of all, there's a problem with the signal to noise ratio. There's also a fundamental problem in innovating. I mean, yeah. I always notice this. You're just short termist. You're just short termist, and innovation, or almost by definition costs you or at least you know costs you something in the short term in return yeah. for long-term gain and effectively you end up in a kind of race to the bottom with a spiral of cost cutting because that's the yeah. thing that delivers results fastest and delivers them in the most quantifiable and predictable way 
but ultimately no business really, you know. There's, there's no growth. There's no growth. No. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, and we're, and we are liberated to invest in things that, um, yes. you know, uh, maybe a, maybe a shareholder driven organization wouldn't be. Um, and, and some of those innovations are, you know, are just wonderful. So, and, and some of them don't make a hell of a lot of money now, but I think they will do. Um, and I think that they're ahead of the curve. You know, we were the first to introduce fashion recycling, um, beauty recycling, um, some of our um, service propositions. We don't measure them by the profit. We measure them by the frequency and customer engagement. So, you know, that's a that's a good thing. And it also, um, you know, we're unashamedly a purpose-driven organisation as well. Where in, where we exist to create sufficient profit to reward our partners and give back to our community, and it's incredibly rewarding to work in an organisation like that. And I do think it engenders loyalty from partners. So when we're able to do things like you know we've just launched a made with care um, range of products where care experienced people have worked with us um, to create um, a new fashion brand. Um, now that's that's not there for commercial reasons. But it gives um, opportunity where opportunity hasn't existed, and it really engenders um, a great feeling. But also, really brings fantastic talent into the partnership. I mean, I know that from you know, I I grew up in Monmouth, and when the Waitrose opened, first of all, there was massive competition to work there, and the people who did work there really, really stayed. And I always yeah. get really grumpy when people go, "Ooh, Gen Z, you know, they're so fickle; they're always changing jobs." And I go, "No, no, no." They're just responding rationally to incentives. They've noticed that employment has become transactional, that you know, you're only one bad quarter away from oblivion. And they've responded. You I mean, trust is a two way street. You it can't is. expect people to be loyal to you if you as an organization show absolutely no loyalty to them. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. And without obviously giving away any kind of trade secrets, what are yeah. your plans for the, the revamping of the loyalty program? Because it was an interesting loyalty program in that it was kind of implicit rather than explicit, wasn't it? You you showed your card without expecting to get so many points, but you showed your card almost just in the expectation of some form of reciprocation. Um, yeah, yeah. Well, the, we've got two loyalty programs: the My Waitrose and My John Lewis. Yeah, um, belong to uh, both. Yeah. So um, My Waitrose um, is famous for its perks. 
So free coffee and um, we've introduced personalized offers. Um, and similarly in my John Lewis, um, the, the coffee and cake vouchers that uh, wow. members get every month are, are kind of famous and dry footfall and um, all of that good stuff. Um, but beneath the surface, there wasn't really the engine of a loyalty program. So no single customer view, no, um, you know, loyalty wallet, no um, data-driven um, nudges, none of that great stuff that allows um, a machine behind loyalty to really understand customers at a segment or individual level and reward them with the things that they that, that they really want. Um, and coming into the partnership and, and seeing that um, made me very quickly realize that, that we needed to partner. And I'm a, a real one for partnering rather than building where we don't have the yeah. specialism. So we've partnered with Dunhumby, um, who I worked with uh, many decades ago on of Tesco, course, Tesco yeah. uh, and also um, Eagle Eye um, to create um, a single customer view. Uh, an ability to be able to really understand customers, you know, to get through terabytes of data and really understand what makes customers tick, to reward them, but also nudge them. Um, and then with Eagle Eye to create effectively uh, a customer wallet that we can, uh, and a, a, an ability to be able to contact customers across TouchPoint. So actually getting the mechanics in place has been the focus for the, for the last year. Um, we've started to roll out personalized offers now, um, informed by Dunhumby, um, which will be absolutely essential to both schemes. We'll do that within the existing schemes, and then we'll bring the schemes together next year. Um, that will be uh, rewarding customers for shopping across both brands uh, and also in our financial services brands. So we've got a partnership card at the moment where you can earn points on purchase. Um, but it's a credit proposition. And what we want to do is extend that into a non-credit proposition. So um, there will be a, a reward for tapping every time um, because candidly, there has to be that. I don't really yes. think a loyalty program can, can, can thrive without um, a reason for customers to interact and, and recognize that they're getting that reward every time. Um, so there will be a currency. Um, there'll also be a real focus on experience so um, uh, in John Lewis in particular, it's a very experiential thing, shopping. Um, yes. And actually, the, whether it's beauty events or kids events or um, uh, sale previews, those things are the things that uh, customers tell us excite them. Um, and I'm a real fan of experiential shopping. So those things will be uh, wrapped together as well. There will be all of the perks that customers like, like the uh, free coffee and more, and we'll also be working really closely with our branded suppliers. So rather than it just being the the retailer um, offering the reward for um, for, for shopping, for experience, there'll also be some uh, third-party elements of it so that when you're shopping through the John Lewis partnership, you get access to exclusive things that are provided through our amazing brands I and mean, if you think about the plethora of brands that we've got um in our stable we've got the whole host of grocery brands but then in john lewis we've got everyone from chanel to apple um all of, of our course, fabulous fashion brands so we're creating something that will be a really rich reward program um that combines what we can do with a, as a retailer with with what our branded suppliers can bring and then i want to make sure it's uniquely john lewis as well so we've got elements in there that um, 
you really won't find anywhere else and are very, very true to our purpose. So um, things like our recycling schemes, things like the ability to be able to share rewards if you don't want to keep them, very much anchored to our brand principles and what we believe in. Um, so I, I'm excited about what the teams are doing. Um, we will be uh, releasing some of those um uh, some of those different features through our existing programs. I don't want it to be a big bang. I'm a real fan of iterative release, but the um, the the programs will come together, and waitress customers will be will be rewarded in John Lewis and vice versa um, around autumn next year. Ah, oh, that's interesting. Yeah, how widely known is it that the two brands are the same? That it's better known than it used to be, presumably. Be- better than it used to be, and we're we're trying hard to emphasise that. Uh, where yes. it's relevant, um, it's about forty percent of our customers recognise that um, uh, yeah. John Lewis and Waitrose are part of the partnership. It's lower than that with non-customers, um, uh, and uh, you know that the, there are so many common things between the brands. The fact we're a partner-owned business, the fact that you get that extra service, our ability to curate great product. Yeah, our warranties are just extraordinary, and um, some of our you know, returns policies—they are absolutely best in class. Um, so it can only benefit uh, both brands that there is more uh, more of a symbiotic relationship between. Well, that, it, it's interesting in a way because that curation, I think, is something that consumers don't fully understand. In other words, they think I'll go to Amazon because it's got the widest possible range without necessarily realizing that good retailers get a lot of feedback on products that cause problems and products that don't. You know? Yeah. Um, and that, uh, you know, the fact that actually you're selecting things and, and architecting choice more manageably um, by getting rid of the worst variants in some field yeah. is, I think, something that's completely overlooked. And, of course, there are two, I, there are two ways I can see John Lewis also becoming you know, a the Amazon for people who don't want to don't want to look at four hundred and ninety seven toasters. You know, they simply want to look at the best and most appropriate toasters. Also, for gift giving, I think. Yeah, I think there's a real potential there because, unfortunately, because Amazon is convenient, giving someone a gift that arrives in an Amazon box makes you, the giver, look a bit lazy. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and so you know, Selfridges, I think, has done that quite successfully at the very high end. Well, yeah, I agree. It's a very good delivery experience. Gift, gifting, gifting is a huge market for us, and especially yeah. that you know going into peak. Um, and um, we, I mean, there's a huge amount of population that will buy a gift for Christmas at John Lewis. I think that the difference between um, us and Amazon, and the way that I talk to my team about it, is that Amazon is everything. John yeah. Lewis is the right thing. So if you want to buy the right thing, come yeah. to John Lewis, um, and and it. It doesn't take control away. It almost gives more control to the customer because the range of choices will always be trusted. You'll always know it's good quality. Yeah. Um, you always know that if something goes wrong, John Lewis will help you sort it out. So for for the customer that like that that is more discerning, um, yes. John Lewis is perfect for them, and that's where that's where we get that loyalty. Um, and you know, there is absolutely no doubt that every single retailer has lost share to Amazon. Um, but if you look at MPS, if you look at brand love, if you look at trust for certain things, then John Lewis is still the place to come for, for those really important missions, as well as the things that are meaningful 
and that meaningful gifting we're seeing a real rising we've seen a real rise in craft gifting as well this year so people making their own gifts and um uh you know it's it's interesting when we've got so much sales day so um you know 12 million people in the uk will shop with us this year um and the so that gives us a vast amount of behavioral data to be able to analyze and see those shifts over time um and people making um their own um gifts is really on the increase um and uh you know and and also planning earlier you know planning for christmas we were up in our christmas shop was up 13 percent in october so, which is just I, extraordinary. Bloke, this is incomprehensible to me. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, about, about December the seventeenth. Most of our customers are women, actually. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, I know oh. we the, the the pre-planning for Christmas thing. I mean, some people buy Christmas presents in the January sales, of course. I mean, that that's the most extreme. Yeah, yeah. very smart. Yeah, very smart. Um, we've got a, a sort of segment on the program called the Top Two Challenges. I think we even have a jingle, which will probably be inserted there. Yes. Top two challenges brought to you by Alf Insight. Alf Insight helps media owners, agencies, and marketing service providers improve their new business pipelines by equipping them with in-depth insights, accurate information, and daily news updates on the leading and challenger brands in the UK. Alf also helps sports clubs, venues, and charities with new partnership deals. Alf Insight identifies the brands to target at the right time, providing everything you need to tailor the perfect pitch. Visit Alfinsight, that's ALFinsight.com, or click the link in the episode description to find out more. <laughs> so as regular listeners know, um, this feature Top Two Challenges asks the um, the guest, what would you say is the biggest challenge for John Lewis? And the second question is, what's the most pressing challenge for the retail sector as a whole? So first, brand specific, by which I mean John Lewis and John Lewis, and then uh, retail as a whole. The biggest challenge is really the choice that customers have. Um, and so as as John Lewis, we really need to adapt and be quick um, to respond to um, customers with a proliferation of choice, and especially with a mid to premium retailer. There's a, yeah. there's a risk that, um, you know, people could shop down to the Denelms and Marks and Spencers, or they could sh- shop up to the um, Harrods and Selfridges. And it's maintaining the reason that you would shop Sean Lewis when we are predominantly a branded retailer. So that differentiation is always the thing that, um, uh, and it, it will be the perennial challenge for a, a department store, a you know, multi-category on this channel retailer. And the middle of the market's difficult. It's even more difficult, of course, in grocery because I mean, we're luckily yeah. you're luckily in a sense you're in the upmarket end. Because yeah. I've talked to Tim Mason about this once. You were, he's, you're a fan, quite rightly. I'm I a think big he's fan. Amazing, big fan, amazing yeah. guy. And he said the problem, part of the problem is, is that when effectively one of the things that's dying is the big weekly family shop. In other words, pushing one of those deep, you know, the deep trolley, the deep trolley shop, you know, where you go and spend a hundred pounds in one go. Yeah. Now, if you're wanting to do that, the mid-market retail is a good place to do it. What happens when people effectively shop little and often is they go up market and down market. They, in other words, the variance changes. So they'll do a kind of, you know, a quick Aldi shop or whatever. And, you know, then they'll go into a M&S Simply Foods. And, you know, generally, you know, when it was a big shop, you avoided the extremes and perhaps less so now when that big shop behavior seems to be 
I mean, it took a long time to die, but it does. I mean, there's a lot of evidence that it's really, really dying out. Yeah, no, I, no, I agree. And the, um, I mean, Tesco's performance would suggest that they've cracked that. However, uh, given yes. they were the classic big shot retail. In fact, when I worked with Tesco back in the '90s, that used to be a segment. Um, uh, we also had a segment which was can't stay aways, which those those of your listeners that used to to work um, in the Tesco business will remember those little illustrations. My team actually built those illustrations of those uh, original segments. It was great fun. What back was can't stay away? Um, People who compulsively go to Tesco just always coming into Tesco, just like three times yeah, a week. Yeah, Re- yeah. Really, really top shops. Um, and we're lucky in Waitrose that. Um, yeah, we have an extremely loyal customer base. Um, uh, not protected from the cost of living crisis by any means. You know, we put no. 100 million into to, to pricing this year. We're absolutely not assuming that our customers are in any way immune to that. And, and we do put a lot of money into um, affordability and in, in our prices. However, we know that the principal reason, the mission is food inspiration. You know, we know that our yes. customers are foodies. Um, uh, they either like making food or they really, really love tasting food. And so when novelty you've got seekers that, far more than, yeah, yeah. So, well, we get a lot of people wanting to be adventurous, really try different things, be inspired by dis- different ingredients. It's a very different proposition to, um, you know, having to get a big affordable weekly shop, although our, our weekly shop is, um, you know, comparable in affordability. There was a, a very cute little um, execution uh, that the Waitrose team put out, which was uh, uh, overheard in Sainsbury's Waitrose's great value these days, um, which uh, was very cute uh, given there was a comparison between a, a Waitrose and a, a Sainsbury's basket. But but we have to be always very mindful of affordability, making sure there's not insult pricing. I mean, you'll know in grocery retail, insult pricing is a thing which is the things that people buy regularly. You cannot be overpriced on the things that people buy regularly. Are there also things which are infrequent where you just go, I, I wrote about this recently, which is the most important thing is getting rid of anything where someone looks at it and goes, now you're just taking the piss. You know, <laughs> yeah. And it's, it's very interesting because, of course, you're right. I mean, insult pricing, particularly for things that you can't avoid buying. Yeah, is, yeah. You've, uh, got to, you've got to be on the customer's side. I think that's the thing for any retailer. A customer has to trust that you are on their side, making things affordable, um, but also bringing that inspiration and people willing to pay a bit more when the product is superior. And, you know, that's what that that's what um, that's what we see in Waitrose. I mean, Waitrose worth every penny schools are very, very high. So even though um, people might perceive Waitrose as costing a bit more, it's worth paying a bit more for certain yes. things because of the taste and the quality. And, and that's the curation, the you actually. Want yeah. And yeah. the curation, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. I mean, our chefs are amazing. Our development chefs, Will, shout out to Will Torrent out there, amazing development chef. Um, yeah. I've put on a lot of uh, weights. <laughs> I'm, I'm done at the oh, daughter's you, you, you haven't got access to the tasting rooms. That I meant someone Oh, God, I have. That's I absolutely have. fatal. Yeah, it absolutely. Is absolutely yeah. fatal. Um, so in May, uh, w- what we haven't talked about, which we should talk about, I know we're both direct marketers, so we naturally go yeah. down into the details, but you appointed Saatchi and Saatchi uh, as your new yeah. creative partner, and after a wonderful partnership with uh, Adam and Eve DDB, and actually Richard Huntingdon from Saatchi's just tweeted very graciously, I thought, that look, they were kind of standing on the shoulders of giants, and that yeah. their ability to do good work built on you know, what they'd inherited from Adam and Eve. Yeah. Um, uh, 
did, did you know it was the right time for a change in direction? Um, I, I mean, the ad is absolutely charming. You have stuck with that principle of doing a celebratory Christmas ad, which is also, um, uh, should we say, unlike M&S, genuinely Christmassy. I found that I found that M&S ad, um, well, fundamentally bizarre, actually. Okay. I get, I get the fact. I get the planning behind it. In that, yeah. you know, there are aspects. There are aspects of Christmas where people feel effectively compelled to do things which, left to their own devices, they wouldn't do because of social yeah. pressure. But who sets fire to greeting cards? I mean, okay, well, right. not not many people. Well, no. Our research, which our research, which suggests like Richard Huntingdon is an absolute gentleman, mm. Um, mm. and uh, you know, a lot of the credit for the strategy behind Great the. Guy. Um, lovely fella brilliant yeah. human being the most enthusiastic I mean, just his yeah. energy and enthusiasm and passion uh is extraordinary um he's a, he's a direct he, marketer by background as well by the way i know i know yeah, yeah. i know can't, can't be a bad thing right no it's not a bad um, thing at all no not a bad thing at all but um he's kept us very close to the insight and the insight this year for for waitrose and john lewis has absolutely driven the campaign so on John Lewis, um, you know, we did loads of research, um, and I'm a huge fan of research as well. Um, yeah. You know, a, a kind of planner originally, so um, I always want to know and be reassured what customers are thinking and feeling, what's happening in society, what you know, all of those, all of those yeah. uh, stimuli. And, and, and Rich is great with that. What our research told us is that the nation loves traditions, and actually, at this unique time of yes. year, getting together and doing quite often bizarre and extraordinary things with people that we don't see maybe that often and hopefully making them our own and making them unique and having a laugh that's christmas right that's a success so a success isn't everything being perfect so i absolutely get that insight and uh, insight and agree with it but but those rituals are the things that allow us to coalesce there are, you know, getting the charade that breaks the ice, doesn't it? This is where putting up plan- the trillion. It's where planning meets anthropology, isn't it? That effectively rituals, festivals, those kind of things. Correct. You know, there isn't a single worldwide culture that doesn't have them. So I think we can draw, you know, we can kind of draw that. Well, yeah, I suppose there are a few out there that Jehovah's Witnesses always, di- always didn't practice Christmas and would make a kind of, uh, you know, a, a big effort a not to recognise it. There are a few religions yeah. that have kind of made a point of being kind of festival free. I don't know what Quakers do. Do you know what we did find in the research this year as well is that um, I think that that love of getting, and maybe this has come out of the pandemic as well, but yeah. that love of getting together and celebrating something and the ritual around that has mm. extended into far more people in the UK celebrating Thanksgiving as well, uh, So, um, which is really fine. interesting. Yeah, especially young people. I don't know what we're supposed to be grateful for, but okay. (laughs) I know, but I think it's, I genuinely think it's not about the, and I, and dare I say, I don't don't think Christmas is necessarily about the, the uh, kind of religious meaning of Christmas. No, well, I mean, you have these traditions where the Japanese go to KFC. You have to pre book KFC on Christmas Day in Japan. I know. Uh, Jewish families have this weird tradition of going for a Chinese meal, presumably because that was the restaurant that was open. I don't know. Um, but it's become a kind of tradition that you go for a Chinese for Christmas lunch. I love that. Um, we, we, yeah. We've seen we've seen turkey takeaways as a, um, a a rising tradition amongst eighteen to twenty four year olds as well, which I love. And Friendsmas, the idea of getting together with friends and celebrating. I think the 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 point is that 
a ritual allows you to lose your inhibitions. It takes you out of the norm. It takes you out of the routine. And it says, this is now your time to relax and enjoy yourself with friends or family or loved ones, whatever shape, size, form, whatever that might be. And that's what we were trying to capture. It's the only week of the year, Christmas New Year, where you don't get any email. You know, there you are all those things. You forget what day it is, don't you? You forget, forget what, you day, forget what day of the week it is. You haven't got a yeah. clue. And that's joyous. And so that, that, that was the, that, the insight was that people basically love this. They love the traditions, but evolve, enduring and evolving. And what we wanted to capture really is that sentiment. It doesn't really matter what the tradition is. The, the, what matters is that it brings people together in that joyous celebration. And yes. of course... Um, you know, we've we've told it through a fairly unexpected uh, lens uh, with a Venus flytrap. Yeah. Um, but I think that I mean, we, there was a headline in the Evening Standard that just said "brilliantly bonkers," and I think that I that, that kind yeah. of sums it up. You know, there there is a there is a a, a sort of peculiar um, and slightly off the wall nature to the ad, but I think it enhances its charm. And yeah, there's there's nothing wrong with a WTF. No, yeah. absolutely. Well, kids, kids love it as well. Kids I think absolutely love it, yeah. The, yeah. the response that we've had is that um, kids are laughing out loud and, uh, you know, wanting to watch it again and again. Um, I was in Cheezle yesterday and um, people had been queuing up before the store opened to buy the plushie. So, uh, you know, it's uh, it, it's just created a sense of joy, momentum um, and a bit of fun and mischief which um you know we shouldn't probably overthink it more than that with all the horrors that are going on in the world you've also done a partnership by the way i understand with uber eats i understand yeah uh so that that takes care of the delivery because and you obviously deliver yourself and you've also expanded you've got shell i think there's a partnership with shell so remember there's probably i think there might be an electric car charging partnership sort of this peculiar interest of mine with shell as well yeah we've got quite a lot of partnerships so we've got Gosh, um, you know, we're always looking to at creative ways to partner with other businesses. We've got a partnership with Alliance, which is a convenience store chain in the Channel Islands. We've got a partnership with Dobby's. Yeah, so the garden centre, yeah. That's yeah, it. that's right. Yeah. So, and um, Deliveroo and Uber Eats has, has grown our presence in that on-demand market. And, and it's very much part of our strategy to create new partnerships for growth. Our, um, our build-to-rent business is a partnership. So um, it's a it's an ability to be able to um, expand Ealing, and I innovate. Was I was talking yeah. at a real estate conference to a cancer in Ealing. Who um, uh, I said it was a bit unfair because if you could have promised the local residents that they got a waitrose, uh, they'd basically agree to any building. Unfortunately, the waitrose is already there, and you've got a lot of basic NIMBY problems. But I, I mean that part, that idea of getting into real estate, by the way, and housing where there's a complete dearth of, you know, we so badly need what you might call the Ikea or the John Lewis of housing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the, and, and trust in that sector as well. Trust is absolutely yeah. um, absent from that sector. Um, you know, it's, it's... I'm also uh, not the world's wokest person, but I did also say that the housing and construction sector is far too masculine in the same way that the train, uh, you know, I always said train companies were always run by blokes who turned the thing into a kind of, you know, punctuality competition. They were obsessed with the systemic qualities of the thing or the utilitarian qualities of something, not the emotional qualities. And there's always a huge loss when that happens. 
renting a home and and long-term renting uh long-term renting has really increased because people just can't afford to buy their own homes but um there's an absolute dearth of affordable housing um and our our housing uh you know our rental properties um the 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 weekly and monthly monthly rents will be really surprising um but we're also investing in making sure that um their communities so we want to have um you know uh classes for community uh, for the people in that rental community to participate in we want them to feel safe in the community so that that um uh you know security isn't an issue we want there to be green spaces so that families can um you know feel that their children can play out safely one interesting thing is of course you have you have this car parked real estate thing i've always wondered and i i, I know exactly why it doesn't happen if I ran my own supermarket, I'd allow three or four food trucks to move into the car park. Now, there's a certain amount of cannibalization. I think it's offset by the footfall that it generates. If you can make the car park into a bit of a bit of a kind of market space and have a few smaller businesses in a car park. And my logic is one of the greatest ideas, one of my favorite marketing ideas, was the fact that Walmart in the U.S. really reached out to the RV community. And so anybody who's got one of these massive, which is fantasy in mind, one of these massive American motorhomes knows that if they're stuck on the road, they can park in a Walmart car park and there'll be kind of water and other supplies for them there. And surprise, surprise, they shop in Walmart. And, you know, yeah, yeah, I, th- yeah. I think, you know, a lot of, a lot of this stuff is just because one of the problems, I suppose, with being a high service thing is service is something people appreciate in retrospect more than they value in advance. And so a lot of your business is really footfall footfall driving in any shape or form is just a really really valuable thing no i agree and and actually driving driving footfall has been the um has, has really been the motivation by ha- behind having things like sushi daily in yes. waitrose or actually yeah. we've got cavendish clinic cavendish clinic in um john lewis so cavendish clinic um which is a, a beauty clinic um not run by John Lewis, but housed within John Lewis. It, it, all of these things are th- reasons to visit. And then hospitality is the other one. You know, um, we know that a good shopping trip uh, is enhanced by um, somewhere to eat and drink uh, yes. and actually and actually thinking about that. So, you know, we've got partnership with Benugo, for example, who've done really well in our John Lewis shops um, just by offering gorgeous coffee, gorgeous sandwiches, cakes, etc. It increases dwell time. Our customers who shop in our um, hospitality spend 22% more than customers who don't. So, you know, all of that um, absolutely uh, leads to getting the best partnerships that can benefit the partner and us. Um, I like the car park idea, though. I'm going to speak to the team about that. I like that idea. You know, just host two or three really interesting... You know, every yeah, area nice. has... There's, there's, there are these people who turn up at our local pub on Monday who do these Greek peruni, it's called who do these kind of Greek kebab, posh kebabs. Nice. And uh, the, the reason the pub has it in the car park is because they have a basic deal. The Peruni place, refuses, they refuse to sell you a drink unless you're going away with the food. Okay, so they won't sell drinks, but they'll sell food because the pub doesn't sell food. And it's a brilliant... Now, Mark Ritson makes this point. He's, I mean, what two of the things that are most... Two of the th- forms of marketing that are... And there's, there's several more, I'd say. I mean, I'd, I'd add I'd add a third one to the list, which is kind of commercial innovation, things like Amazon Prime. But the two, Mark Ritz, I think it's um, auditory branding and radio advertising are always underused. You know, 35 years in marketing, radio basically worked incredibly well for the money, but weirdly, it's the first thing to be cut to the budget. And then the other thing is brand partnerships. And I'm, 
Uh, Mark Ridson makes this point that they're actually hugely potent. He obviously yeah. worked in you know brands like Kenzo and High Fashion for a time. And I think that brand partnerships are underexploited just because they're not that expensive. Yeah, so yeah, they yeah. don't get that much attention. And there isn't a de- there's a brilliant company within WPP called Mando Connect, which just does brand partnerships. And they're like a Midas touch. I mean, every time I've got a problem, I just go to them and bingo, they say, this is how we'd solve it. And I go, well, that's brilliant. I've met the team at Mando. They're a great team. Yeah, Charlie. Yeah, yeah, they're a great team. I'm sure they can come up with with more. I'm sure. When your loyalty loyalty scheme comes out, have a good chat because they work with Vodafone, for example. um, Vodafone is British and is keen to be seen as a fabric of the nation brand. And yet 25% of people think it's Korean, despite the fact that it's something like the eighth largest business on the FTSE. And so uh, that that would be a tremendous opportunity. I will follow that up, Rory. Ah, oh, fantastic. Well, I think that uh, you've got a loyalty program to design, so I don't want to take up any more of your time. I know, I think we're out of time. <laughs> and I'm, I'm, <laughs> honestly, it's been such a pleasure talking it's to you. It's been spent... absolutely a joy. Anytime, always happy to meet a fellow behavioural science enthusiast as well. So thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. It's been an absolute delight to chat with you. And you've been listening to On Brand with Alf and Rory Sutherland. If you want to do business with the John Lewis Partnership or any other retailer, contact the Alpha Insight team on their website, which is www.alfinsight.com. That's www.alfinsight.com. You can also find the link in the episode description. The series, as ever, is produced and expertly edited by Ultimate Content. And to make sure you receive the next episode, please do subscribe and tweak the algorithm by giving us a like if you've enjoyed what you've heard. So all that remains for me to say is thank you for listening and uh, hope you'll join us next time. Bye.